Welcome to Language Made Difficult, an unavoidable part of the SpecGram podcast. This is our 25th episode, so that's why it feels like we've been at this for a quarter of a century. I'm Trey Jones, and this Linguistic Roundtable Telesymposium is coming to you from our virtual conference center, hosted via satellite uplink from deep beneath the Earth's surface in Mammoth Cave, Kentucky. Joining me today are the rest of the Ling nerds, Keith Slater. Great to be with you, folks. Bill Sproul. Hey. And recently upgraded full-time Ling nerd, Sherry Wells-Jensen. Hi, and uh, thank you, of course, for the generous welcome gift basket. Appreciated that. <laughs> and the salary increase. <laughs> and the salary, and the, the Chomsky head balloons were especially nice, I thought. <laughs> they get bigger all by themselves. <laughs> <laughs> the pony was a little much. You guys didn't have to do the pony, but I appreciated it. It was secondhand. Don't worry. <laughs> Also joining us on the program today is Aya Katz. Welcome, Aya. Thanks for visiting with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Always good to get fresh meat. Okay, so <laughs> let's start off with some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. I've got three language-related items. Two of them are true, and one is false. You guys have to figure out which is which, and after you make your overly educated guesses, we will discuss. Today's topic is crazy claims. Everybody's favorite. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Always the easiest. <laughs> <laughs> Item number one. Bulgarian Svetomir Antov claimed that veterans of World War I trench warfare, having spent so long waiting around doing nothing in the trenches, used fewer action verbs in their speech even 10 years after the war ended. Item number two. Japanese public health researcher Sakae Inoue claimed that English speakers spread SARS more easily than Japanese speakers because aspirated stops in English spew more saliva than unaspirated stops in Japanese. Item number three. Australian David Oates claimed that we all speak forward and backward at the same time, and our backward speech reveals our true intentions. Interestingly, foreigners speak English in reverse, and he claimed that Gaddafi said, bomb America backward in English while speaking Arabic. All right, who wants to go first? I'll take a stab at it, I guess. The first one, the one about the Bulgarian researchers saying that veterans of World War I used fewer action verbs... That one I'm kind of suspicious of, and it's partly just because I honestly don't remember if Bulgaria participated in World War One, And so I'm going to put that one over on the side for the moment, because that might be a weak point. The second one about English speakers spraying people more and therefore spreading SARS, I am quite willing to believe that a public health official might think that about speakers of a different language, because as far as I can tell, everyone thinks that speakers of other languages spit all over the place. <laughs> the third one, the one about people speaking forwards and backwards at the same time, that one is so insane that I have to believe someone said that, because that's not the, oh, I've been doing research on this little area so much that I've lost track of reality, <laughs> and... Talked myself into this weird position. That one's just out there. Okay. Totally, totally unconnected. And that sounds like the kind of thing somebody would just up and say one day. So I'm going to guess number one is the false one. Okay. Who wants to go next? I will. Okay. Well, I tend to agree that number two is incontrovertibly true. Americans do spit. So <laughs> it's not one of the false ones. Then we have to sort of decide between Australian backwards and forwards, which sounds really crazy, and the Bulgarian claim about action verbs. Well, not being there would be a really good reason to make that claim, right? Not having been involved in the war. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> 
therefore having this theory. So I'm going to go the opposite way from Bill and say that that one is true, too, that somebody did claim that, and that therefore the number three backwards and forwards is probably made up by Trey. Okay. Well, let me go next then, because although I think all three of these are probably true, (laughs) I'm deciding to come down on the the one neither of them have chosen. So I think, you know, it's got to be true. And I think we'll have some discussion of this shortly, that action verbs correlate with physical actions. So I think number one must be true. And conversely, inactivity correlates with fewer action verbs. So that's got to be true. Three about uh, speaking backwards and forwards. I remember that from 70s rock and roll. And that, once again, is something that is pretty well known, at least by some people, and certainly claimed by some people. So two must be the one that's wrong. I don't know which part is wrong here, but it's not a Japanese health researcher saying this about English speakers. Maybe it was a Korean health researcher saying it about German speakers or something. But anyway, there's something wrong in this one. And so I'm going to say it's the false one. Oh, come on. I never mess with the details like that. <laughs> you never change the details. <laughs> I'm always accused of it, but I never do it. Sherry? Huh. Okay, so first off, I finally figured out why I can never remember if it's two lies and one true one or one true one. Cause you say lies, damn lies. So I always think the two of them have to be false. Ah. So now I feel better about myself because I know it's Trey's fault that I keep becoming confused by this, which always makes me feel better about everything. Okay, so... The one about backward speaking is just too glorious, and so I want that one. So that's, that one's got to be true. I absolutely somebody said that, and if they didn't, they'd better. So they should start <laughs> saying that immediately. That's all over late night radio. It's got to be. It's just got to be. So that one is true. And so then I'm left with aspirated stops or verbs, and I think that people think more about verbs than they do about aspirated stops. Besides, I don't like the guy's name in number two. I think Trey made that up. So I think number two is the lie. That's it. Number two is the lie. Since we had two people choose number two, we'll start there. That was the one about the Japanese Uh-oh. public health researcher who claimed uh, that not e- a good sign. <laughs> English speakers it's spread SARS. He did actually claim that. <sighs> and it may be Uh-oh. true that English speakers spew more saliva, but he was talking about English speakers, not necessarily Americans. And so it turns out that Americans did get SARS more often than the Japanese but less than the British. Uh-huh. And the French and Italians, who don't have aspirated stops, were more susceptible to SARS. So it was claimed. The claim was proven false. I guess maybe now Keith's going to accuse me of that being a trick. Aha, uh-huh. it's a trick. <laughs> that was a trick. Wasn't that a trick? <laughs> Sounds like a trick. Very tricky. <laughs> Number three, the one about the backmasking. In fact, this guy in Australia, David Oates, does claim that we speak forward and backward at the same time. So that one's true. He does claim that Gaddafi said bomb America backwards in English while speaking Arabic. And it's also true that he's a nut job. So isn't he a singer or something? I don't think so. You're thinking of all oats? Some, some other oats. Huh? <laughs> yes. Okay. Different oats, I believe. <laughs> and the first one about the action verbs and the lack of action in World War One veterans is something I just made up. Completely out of Did enough. you make up the name? Did you I make did. up Bulgaria? <laughs> I did make up the name out of Bulgarian spare name parts I had linked. <laughs> <laughs> He's not actually from Bulgaria. His name is just Bulgarian Svetomir Antov. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's his first name. <laughs> yeah. that, that's his wrestling name. <laughs> he's, actually, he's actually from Peoria. To the scores. Oh, no, no, no scores. No scores. <laughs> yeah. I don't think we should do scores because it's my first 
time. Well, I have retroactively included your scores from the last time you were on. Oh, no. Well, that, <laughs> that makes you better than zero, so. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Bill got that one right, and because three of you got it wrong, I get a point. Oh, goodness. So now the scores are, I've got four out of five, Bill's got three out of five, Keith and our guests have one out of five, and Sherry has one out of three. Well, I feel so sad. I'm winning. I think that puts you in the middle. <laughs> it all depends on how you crunch the numbers, actually. <laughs> By my math, I'm winning. By my math, I'm always winning, though. <laughs> she has fewer incorrect than, say, me. <laughs> and I think she only counts the ones she got right. So in that case, she's one out of one, right? <laughs> I got one right out of one right. <laughs> It's a great game. I like this game. <laughs> Trey, aren't you supposed to be tipping off the guests ahead of time so that they do better than the regulars? I mean, you could abuse us, but the guests ought to be made to feel better, right? Well, the problem was I had jumped in before the end. See, I, if you go last, then I can give you hints. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. I have to keep everybody else's score down. <laughs> <laughs> That's all for Lies, Damn Lies, and Linguistics. And we'll be right back after this commercial break. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by nobody in particular. Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. So this article, which was actually a podcast, it is a repeating podcast from Scientific American called 60 Second Science. I shouldn't probably tip my hand that it was only 60 seconds long. The, the good thing about that is it leaves lots of room for inference, which I like. <laughs> and the article is called We Listen With Our Hands Too. And the premise is this. They took a bunch of folks and they played sentences for them while having them grip on to, I believe the technical term would be grippy on things. I don't know. They were gripping on to some kind of handle that would measure the strength. And then at the point in the sentence where the verb came up, and if the verb was something that one could do with your hands, like scratch or pick up, then they noted that the people would squeeze harder. Their hand would squeeze harder when they heard that, unless the verb was negated, which I think is snazzy. And the point was not only did you have this connection between what you hear and your physiological reaction, but then also if you negated it, handy dandy, you didn't have that reaction. Well, there's all kinds of things you could do with this if you get to apply this stuff right away. First off, it's handy dandy that we put the neg before the verb, right? Because otherwise, what would they do? I mean, would this work? Right. You wouldn't know. You would have to stop <laughs> that involuntary motion. Maybe those people have some kind of time loop, right? You know, maybe languages that have the negative after the verb, people actually predict that the negative is coming. So maybe they actually know ahead of time that you don't need to grip harder when you hear a verb like lift if there's a negative coming later on. Well, that's how French works. So Yeah, it's like predictive text, right? That makes sense to me because that would mean that everyone who speaks one of those languages which are harder than English is a little bit psychic, and that's how they learned it. So I no longer have to feel bad about not being fluent, say, in Japanese, because Japanese speakers with the neg after the verb are clearly psychic, right? <laughs> well, I think really it just means that the negatives are always underlyingly at the beginning of the sentence. <laughs> That's probably it. That's probably it. If I were a good chump skianist, I would know that. <laughs> but there's all kinds of cool applications you could do with this. I was thinking about... Okay, so whenever I see a new technology like this, my mind immediately goes to international espionage. I don't know why that is. <laughs> I was thinking, if this is involuntary, which you assume that it must be, right? Then I was thinking, you could use this handy-dandy technique to see if the person that you have captured speaks a particular language. 
right? Because you play them these sentences with these verbs in it while they're holding on to the little squeezy. And if they understood the verb and it had something to do with gripping or picking up or something, then you could get their involuntary physical reaction to this verb. And it could be like a language knowledge detector. Hmm. The actual sentences that they used were in French, all of them. What? Nobody understands French. (laughs) In fact, the visual that they provided of those sentences was very blurry. You had to kind of blow it up to be able to see it. But there's another factor in this whole thing, which is country names. The subjects were not told what they're being tested on. So they were told they're supposed to listen very carefully for a country name. And if a country name came up in the sentence, then they were supposed to squeeze. Okay. Now, there were some distractor sentences that actually had country names in them, but not in any of the uh, data sets that they used for their calculation. So they threw out all the distractor sentences with the country names. Huh. Well, this changes things completely. <laughs> you actually read the article, didn't you? Now you're making the rest of us look bad. Did you explain the rules? <laughs> Did you explain the rules to her about reading and not reading? And <laughs> Okay, so people, let's just get this straight. People were sitting there tensely waiting to hear a country name, knowing that they needed to squeeze when they did. And they what? they squeezed at the wrong points when they heard verbs that involved things like lift and not at the points where they heard things like walk. So does this mean that the subjects thought that lift was a country name? <laughs> like Lithuania? <laughs> yeah, Lithuania. There you go. See? <laughs> Presumably, they squeezed voluntarily for the country names. Of course, the point of that was to make sure they stayed focused on the task, right? And they're actually listening. I don't think you can presume that. <laughs> well, that's what they said that's in the article. That was the reason done. they did that was so that they would pay attention. I read part of the article. Okay, okay. There is another technology hook in with this, unfortunately, which is that this is going to make it even more difficult to have the human control giant robots and powered battle armor. <laughs> Because those all work with muscle control and tactile feedback. And you'll just have to set up a situation where the people controlling them can't hear anything. Because the minute somebody says, get that one or something, oh, get something, you accidentally go bounding across the landscape. (laughs) I assume the people who are smart enough to design giant mechs like that would uh, have some minimum threshold for the actuators to control the mech. Yeah, but if there's any risk that this would interfere with the giant robots, then we have to suppress this article completely. We have to make sure it never... We, I don't know how it's already published. I don't know what we do, but we have to take steps. But the giant robots, they always are operated by people who speak Japanese, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that does seem no to problem. be true. This was French. <laughs> so, No problem. So that's it, since they're all psychic and they see the negations coming psychically back in time, they won't be led astray. All right, we're all set. Good deal. I was thinking we could also sort of do a crowdsource test of the theory. And for all of our listeners right now, you should pay attention to the following sentence. Homer is squeezing Bart's neck. Now, at least some of the people who are listening would have been holding hot or cold beverages in their hands. And if the theory were true, they just squeezed it all over themselves. And so we'll count the number of irate letters and phone calls we get. And then we'll have a result. Okay. We'll have to also count the number of irate letters and phone calls that we don't get so that we can do statistics on oh. what percentage of the audiences uh, of the audience members responded. We'll have to get one of our Japanese-speaking psychic interns to count those for us. 
Are we going to use the real number of listeners, or are we going to use the <laughs> advertising budget stated <laughs> number of listeners? <laughs> don't don't mention the advertisers. <laughs> Fortunately, they never actually listen. <laughs> who can stand to? I think this whole thing is kind of an interesting thing for people who are into sort of the embodied cognition, because this does seem to be that there's some sort of you know crosstalk between your language processing center and your motor cortex, and I think this gets at the idea that we learn from embodied cognition people that language rests on the backs of four giant elephants who are in turn standing on the back of a giant embodied metaphor. And from there, it's metaphors all the way down. I think it's all true now. It does seem to be. Even with the metaphors all the way down, I am still waiting for the CIA to call because I think that I've got a million dollar government grant here. I might have to share a little bit of it with the actual researchers, but maybe not much if they're not listening, which odds are they're not. (laughs) odds are good i don't know the critical thing here is that you have to be able to reproduce the grip force sensor the grippy thing right i think the original researchers are certainly going to hold on to that patent because that's going to be what the department of defense needs yeah and we just use the trey's got it figured out it's the hot or cold beverage that's all we need which (laughs) makes the research even more desirable if you're asking me we can have cold beverages I'm good with this. I think this is perfect. They said the sensor was a, the force grip sensor. They had the subjects hold it in a precision grip. Yes. I saw that, a precision grip, yes. Which I just imagine is like, you know, a little dainty forefinger and thumb kind of thing. If you wanted to sell it to the military and the the intelligence community, instead of the precision grip, you need a kung fu grip. Uh, Yeah, the nunchucks grip or something. Right. So you have something where you grab onto it with the kung fu grip and then they could test you. I mean, precision grip sounds like it was a teacup or something. Mm Mm-hmm. We don't want teacups. We want long neck bottle grip. That's what we're after here, I think. (laughs) You could sell it to the TSA, though, or Homeland Security. (laughs) Right, right. And then, of course, you have to wonder then, does this work with other action verbs and other body parts? So if you read a sentence with sniff in it, do you inhale a little more sharply? If you Does this work with kick and what are the other foot verbs? I lost my list of foot verbs. Kick and (laughs) where else you do? Uh, walk, walk, run, walk, walk. That'd be a foot thing. Mostly. Yeah. <laughs> Kick again. Yeah. It's kind of hard to hold on to the sensor with your feet. That is why the, we need the grant. From the description I read, it's not going to be easy to handle with the nose either. <laughs> I suppose you could get a little airflow sensor, shove it up in yeah. your nose. You're putting limits on me, and I've got millions of dollars of your tax money to spend on this. I'm sure I can develop some kind of nose-grippy thingy. What I want to do with this is kind of like put philosophers in full-body censor suits and then see if the ones that have read too much Hegel keep reacting to the word nothing as if it's a verb (laughs) and see what they do in reaction to it. And then, you know, maybe being... Just throw in being and see, like, what did they do? Is there this kind of full-body anti-flinch? <laughs> also, there are involuntary actions such as breathing or heartbeat. I wonder if that's described. Would it actually affect your vital functions? Mm. That would explain a lot of what goes on at doctor's offices. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they say blood pressure and it goes up. And, yep. Yeah. So this reminds me of the infant studies where they have the little wired up pacifier and the sucking rate is assumed to mm-hmm. correlate with the interestingness of the stimuli. Yeah. 
I guess they did talk about action words involving the hands, but I wonder if they confounded action words and interesting ideas. At least in English, someone throwing a ball is more interesting than someone not throwing a ball. Maybe in Japanese it wouldn't be because you wouldn't know whether it was thrown or not thrown until the end. I think they need to test very interesting non-action phrases, like your academic archenemy has gotten tenure, or your linguistics program is being discontinued, which don't actually have any action in them but are still very interesting and might also elicit a response, you know, gripping fists of rage. Trey, I hate to tell you this, but the research interns a couple of years ago did a study kind of like that. And the problem is every time the sentence has the word linguistics in it, people just kind of relax. (laughs) (laughs) Is it boredom or resignation? That we cannot tell from the data. I think it it might be terror. They just sort of go limp. (laughs) (laughs) This was our own research interns? Yeah, three of them are still around, I think. Mm. Well, then I would guess it was terror in their case. (laughs) Might have been. (laughs) This study does explain one additional thing, though, which is that over the years, I've had a lot of students who were taught that verbs are action words. That's how they were defined for them. So Mm -hmm. when they go looking for verbs, they're looking for what they think of as an action verb. And I have had a number of students tell me that sentences where the verb was negated obviously had no verb. (laughs) Because, but the sentence says somebody didn't pick up something. Well, that's what this research proves, that negation eliminates the verb. It makes perfect sense now. Mm -hmm. Ah. Well, I certainly think that's about all we can stand until I get my... $2 million grant to carry on this conversation further. Uh, I think we're ready for commercial. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by People for the Ethical Treatment of Functionalists. Do your part to help the poor. Employ a functionalist today. Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. If you're like us, you occasionally turn off the internet and read one of those um, books, a book. And here at Language Made Difficult, we feel that it's our duty to give you guidance in all the language-related areas of your life, including helping you to decide which language-related books to read. So to help you out, today we've decided to give you some reviews of books related to language. We're going to start with The Professor and the Madman by Simon Winchester. We'll just ask some of our Ling nerds and our guests to give you reviews based on their reading of this influential and high-grossing book. Uh, Let me just start, and my review... Well, this book was disappointing. Too much plot, not enough lexicography. What about some of the rest of you? (laughs) I thought the overall story of how the OED came to be was very interesting. And the the cerebral relationship between the professor, James Murray, and the madman, William Chester Minor, uh, was interesting. A fun fact, Minor was actually on the cover of a 2005 issue of Specgram. However, I thought, getting back to the book, there was a little too much detail concerning the Kandiru fish and its bad habits and there was too much discussion of Miner's manly bits and his feelings about his manly bits and his related self-harm. I don't really feel the need to mix lexicography and genital mutilation. So my rating is uh, three out of five self-amputations. Okay, anybody else have any comments on this influential book? I'm just going to give it a two out of five on the grounds that I think the title is unfortunate. There are certain concepts that we don't want the public connecting. this was a disjunctive and the professor and the madman they were different it doesn't matter you're putting both of them together on the cover we've had trouble with that already (laughs) 
Our giant robot project has been cut five times in the past year. (laughs) And James Murray wasn't even a professor. Sherry? This book is one of the ones that I really am not allowed to read because my students review this book frequently. It is on the list of books that I have recommended to them. Therefore, I cannot read it. Mm -hmm. Um, If I were to read this book, then I would be confused and put off by the facts in the book. And I would no longer be able to read their reviews with the same amount of charity and goodness in my heart and forgiveness. So <laughs> I cannot read this book, but I can tell you that it gets a four out of five because of the naughty bits from my students. I'm afraid they disagree with you there, Trey. Oh. And it is way more interesting than language files, but not quite as fun as the Klingon dictionary. <laughs> Okay, that's great to see where it fits in context with the rest of the body of linguistic scholarship. Yeah. Aya? Yeah, I've not read it, but I'm going to give it three out of five and not more than that because I did use the look inside the book function to read a randomly selected page. And I was shocked and I disapprove of the book because of its anti-gun sentiments expressed in one of the very few sentences that I happened to read. And the sentence went like this, but it was not a place for men with guns. And actually, there was another sentence on the same page. Happily, we in this country have no experience of the crime of shooting down so common in the United States. Of course, after reading that, I immediately closed the book. And as far as I know, there is no crime called shooting down in the United States. (laughs) Okay, well, so much for the professor and the madman. Let's move on. The next book we want to review is another well-known one called Portuguese Irregular Verbs by Alexander McCall Smith. Friends told me that I would find this book funny, but actually it all seemed pretty much like normal academia to me, kind of like a documentary almost. In fact, my own MA thesis was called Portuguese Irregular Verbs, and I'm not quite sure why Smith has stolen my topic. The only thing I can't understand is why I've never heard of Professor von Igelfeld before. What do the rest of you think of this book? I don't know why we're discussing this book. The main character is a philologist, not a linguist, and it shows. In the book, he tries to learn tennis. Real academics don't do things like that. They sit at their computers (laughs) and become wan and pasty as they should. (laughs) He travels to Ireland and tries to learn some actual Irish. He's never going to get tenure doing field work. And, you know, I just couldn't sustain my suspension of disbelief. So my rating is dos out of siete verb conjugations. So you didn't even make it all the way through the book is what you're saying. Yeah. Not surprising. Well, others? Well, I just looked at the Wikipedia page on Portuguese verbs, and it got it all in one place, so I didn't (laughs) really see any reason to read it. (laughs) (laughs) So you're familiar with all the conjugations without reading the book? Well, it's a romance language. It's going to have irregular bits where romance languages have irregular bits. I mean, that's normal. (laughs) Unlike William Chester Minor's irregular bits, which were not where they were supposed to be. Uh, Moving on. (laughs) Aya, what did you think of this one? I did not read it, but and I didn't even get to the part where you look inside the book. You know, I didn't even go that far. This time, I only looked at the best review that it got on Amazon. You know, the Mm. the five stars, and it said that if you love British humor or Frasier, then you will love this book. So. I do not love British humor or Frasier. If the reviewer had said that it was uh, a lot like Cheers, that might have been different. But I mean, come on. Frasier is a spinoff. So <laughs> I, I would give it one out of five. <laughs> 
Okay, Sherry? Okay, now I got to get back to the business of disagreeing with Bill because I think a book full of Portuguese irregular verbs is just the thing. I mean, may, I mean, maybe I'm not supposed to talk this way because I'm new, so maybe I don't know all the rules, but I was just tremendously moved by all those like lines and lines of verbs all just all together, all lined up, all in order. I just found it really soothing. And I know it was, you know, 500 pages and change, but boy, I just read those verbs and I, I would chant them to my cat. And it was transformative for me. So it gets a five out of five. I just really, I really loved it. <laughs> well, we're all over the map on that one. <laughs> okay, well, let's move on to uh, the next book for today's review is The Bible Code by Michael Drosnan. Who'd like to go first on this one? I couldn't read. This book is on the wrong paper. It says The Bible Code. It's on the stick paper. I didn't read it. You, it's got to be on the Bible paper. It's, it's, it's wrong. It's just done wrong. <laughs> and I don't have patience for that. I didn't read it needs to be the thin stuff, right? That you can just about see through. Absolutely. Right. With the little golden little bits and the curved corners and the, you know, the leather cover. And it wasn't. It was mm. just a dumb paperback. So, no. <laughs> okay, Trey. While you guys were talking, I did a quick analysis of Keith's introduction. And if you take every third letter starting from the second letter of his fourth word after the break, it spells out the bobble code is statistically redonkulous. Now, given that Keith was speaking extemporaneously only for a few minutes, it's not surprising that all we got was a near miss. The premise of this book is mathematically impertinent, and so my rating is one out of every 47 jumping Jehoshaphats, starting with the fourth one. <laughs> okay, that's a very high rating, considering what your real opinion seems to be. <laughs> but we'll go with it. Anyone, anyone else have an opinion about I, Honestly, I couldn't bring myself to read this book. Don't people have better things to do than make money publishing nonsense? I mean, other than academic people. I mean, you know. Well, <laughs> I have not read it either, but I was excitedly told about it by a number of relatives. And um, <laughs> while my initial response was to give it zero out of five stars, I'm now wanting to go up to 0.5 out of five stars because – they did at least acknowledge that maybe what they should analyze is the Hebrew, <laughs> which I think came potentially as a surprise to a number of the readers, you know. <laughs> but I think anyone doing a major sort of statistical analysis routine like this needs to aim it at other texts and see if it produces a reductio ad absurdum. <laughs> and this one does pretty rapidly. And that doesn't mean it's a fatal flaw, because there's a lot of linguistic theories that do exactly the same thing. But <laughs> this one does it too transparently. Right. Too transparently. That's the right. That's the damning critique. Aya, did you have any comments, or have you already said something? I've forgotten. No, I actually have not said anything at all. But it's quite possible they may be onto something, because if we take any linguistics article that we have been reading straight word by word, letter by letter, and we start skipping the requisite number, they might start to make sense. <laughs> well, that's the way I read linguistics articles, and I haven't found it to improve the content. Okay. Does it make the content any worse? Hard to say. I'm usually asleep by the time I realize it. <laughs> you know, there is an now, I guess, rather dated, but it's within the past 50 years or so, I think, an idea that one of the ways to test the amount of meaning that a text has is to go through and flip negations on things. So if it's a positive clause, make it negative. If it's a negative clause, make it positive. And see how much it affects... Your grip. 
Well, there's the grip. There is the grip because it, 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 it alters the whole grip frequency profile of the text. <laughs> also, if you take certain texts, if you flip the polarity on things, no one can really tell there's a difference. You know, Derrida is the classic case. I was going to say. translations of Derrida. I'm not sure if it works in French because in French you flip the negation and you just have the wrong negative part before the verb, I guess, and then the other one after it. So it's pas ne instead of ne pas. <laughs> I think this kind of strategy where you take a text and you just sort of go through and only take certain things and look at them and then see if it still makes sense or not is a way of testing something. It's just the something isn't necessarily facty. <laughs> okay, the next book we'd like to review is called Through the Language Glass, Why the World Looks Different in Other Languages by Guy Deutscher. Who has an opinion about this book? Well, I Nobody. have not read it, but uh, I disapprove <laughs> of the fact that the appearance of the Kindle cover and the hardback cover are different from each other and equally different from the paperback cover. And I think that's just way too confusing. They should pick a single cover design and stick to it. Mm, I agree with mm. that. Something about judging a book. <laughs> <laughs> Who else has an opinion? Well, even though I I agree with, with Aya about the cover, and I find the main premise of the book theoretically repugnant, Derek Bickerton called the book fascinating reading, and uh, Stephen Fry said it was jaw-droppingly wonderful and pellucid. And pellucid is a word that I am not capable of remembering the meaning of for more than a few minutes at a time. So, although I haven't actually read it, it's apparently quite nice, and I've heard it has a good beat and you can dance to it, so I give it four out of five stars. Yeah, I just want to add to that that any book that has been reviewed by Stephen Fry has got to be a good one, even if he didn't like it. That's true. I believe that is true. I do not trust my opinion of the book because it's written in English, and I think that may have overly shaped my opinion of the book. <laughs> Could you tell us what your opinion is? Well, I'm not sure what my real opinion is because if I spoke a different language, I might have a different one. That's true. <laughs> has it been translated to other languages? I don't think translation is possible according to this theory. <laughs> They dare, do they? <laughs> so, what would be the right language to read it in? <laughs> Esperanto? Oh, it's probably Loibon. I think you just no. Or if you will, it's probably if you will. No, I think you just have to look at the pictures. Mm. No, because mm. just colors look at the cover. Different. Just look <laughs> at the covers; they're all different. Oh my goodness, that's on purpose so that you have different impressions of the different versions of the book. Right now, I get it. All right, four and a half out of five stars. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, next language, uh, next book. Sorry, did I skip someone? You did skip me, and I was holding oh. my breath over here because oh. if you, in fact, take every 47th word in this book, you do get a message about the giant robot. And so it's worth reading just for that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> moving on. Okay, moving on. Another book we'd like to... <laughs> give you some insightful reviews about today is called You Are What You Speak, Grammar Grouches, Language Laws, and the Politics of Identity by Robert Lane Green. Now, I just have to say, you gotta love a book that has grammar grouches in the subtitle. I mean, it would have been better in the title, but the subtitle is good, and I wish that I had worked that into the last paper I published. Uh, as far as the content, I don't know, I didn't read it, but it has a, a very nice cover. Did anyone read it? 
Well, you don't have to read it to realize that the primary argument of the book is an affront to the long and proud tradition of language mavenry. It erodes the foundation of communication with its... Um, wait, this isn't the Safaristas prescriptivist <laughs> podcast, is it? Try again. Oh, crap. This is language made stupid, or whatever it's called. Anyway, um, <laughs> so, 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 the primary argument of this book is a welcome affront to the long and sordid tradition of language mavenry, dispelling foolish myths about language while subtly introducing the reader to and indoctrinating them in the ways of descriptive sociolinguistics. It's a gem. Sociolinguistics is a gem? I'd like to hear a <laughs> contrasting opinion. Okay, well, Aya, what did you think about this book? Well, um, I didn't like the anti-prescriptivist tenor of it, but also, what does he mean that language is only for communication rather than just rules? Of course, language is just about rules. If you really wanted to communicate, you would not use language. <laughs> <laughs> An insightful point you have. Could you say that in some other way? Hmm. Uh, what, what other way did you have in mind? I don't know, a non-linguistic one. Something not using language. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, I could if I could show you a video of my chimpanzee pointing toward the door. But Okay. Okay. Well, unfortunately, we're short on videos here. Anyone else have anything to say about you are what you speak? I just had one reaction that was triggered by reading the review of it instead of the book. But the review sort of mentioned Strunk and White's pithy dictums. And what Strunk and White actually have is pompous dicta. There's a difference. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Did you want to make a point about pluralization there or pomposity? No, I just wanted to say something nasty about Strunk and White because they deserve it. I see. All right. Well, thanks. I hope your students are listening. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to our last book. We thought for our last book in today's discussion, we'd tackle one that's really aimed at the scholarly audience, and that is A Grammar of Maori from the Descriptive Grammars series. This one is by Winifred Bauer. Who has a comment about this excellent piece of scholarship? It has the herring sentence. <laughs> Thank there you, is an example sentence in that book, if it's the is, one is I'm that remembering. Is a euphemism for something? <laughs> He's gone Monty Python on us again. No, no. If I remember correctly, which I may not, but it's too good, <laughs> so it should have it in it even if it doesn't. There is a s example sentence in that book that not only is all vowels, because a bunch of Maori is all vowels, it translates to, those herring made me scream and scream. And that's awesome. <laughs> so that's not a spectrogram thing. I don't think it is. I think it's actually in the Maori grammar. Oh, well, then in that case, I really want to read it. That's my review. <laughs> I would like to read it. Great. Oh, I was just going to say that, that I would like to read this book now up to the herring point, and then I will stop. I found this book large and expensive, and therefore I gave it a zero out of my purchasing budget, and I have not read it. Uh, I didn't read it either. I fell asleep on page I-I-I. So, uh, I give it uh, three out of three sheep leaping over a fence. <laughs> no, I think the page about I-I-I, that actually means your kneecaps are octagonal. I-I-I. <laughs> well, you certainly internalized Maori phonology, if nothing that's else. two good sentences in one book. Wow, that's a lot. Okay, well, I guess that's all the time we've got for book reviews today. Let's just sum up by telling our listeners, be careful what you read, folks. If you read it in a book instead of hearing it directly from a linguistics professor, it may not be true. 
And that's all the time we have for Language Made Difficult. Thanks to our guest, Aya Katz, for hanging out with me and the rest of the Ling Nerds this time. Join us next time when we discuss whether xenotheolinguistics and theoxenolinguistics are the same thing or not. I'd like to give you maximum editing trouble, Trey. That's what mm-hmm. I'm here yeah. for. I think it's easier to make things up. Maybe I should worry about my career. It's easier for me to make up junk than it is for me to look stuff up. Uh, that's just a time-traveling joke. <laughs> oh, I see. I got it. <laughs> If you didn't get it, you will be having done so soon. (laughs) (laughs) Trey, take three. Japanese public health researcher, Sakai. So, Aya, as you can imagine, there's a whole lot of editing I have to do. Yes, I would hope so. (laughs) Are you saying we're not consistently brilliant? Is that what you're saying, Trey? Because just say it. (laughs) No, no, you're all pretty funny, but uh, your timing's bad. (laughs) (laughs) We're funny in a highly editable sort of way. (laughs) We're like low-density raw funniness. (laughs) It has to be refined. Yeah. Well, someone will say something like, Bill, what do you think? And then Bill has to think. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking is a real activity that requires time. It takes time. (laughs) I I take it literally when somebody says, what do you think? I was going to say, opinions are better when there aren't facts in the way. Just edit that out, Trey. I I thought it was going to go somewhere and then the the engine wouldn't start. (laughs) It went somewhere. Well, nowhere good. I fly, you know. (laughs) That one needed a choke. (laughs) All right. Is this horse dead? Another 30 seconds of silence. <laughs> That's usually the cue. I think maybe we've we've exhausted this one. Okay. Here on the steps of linguistics, we waste no part of the horse. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Maybe we should just start calling ourselves the grammar grouches. Ah, we're falling apart. Even worse than usual. Thanks for listening. <laughs>